Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Ahali Conversations. This season of Ahali Conversations is supported by the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts. The Graham provides project-based grants to foster the development and exchange of diverse and challenging ideas about architecture and its role in the arts, culture and society. Today, we are in conversation with Marina Otero-Verzier. She is an architect, researcher, curator, and also the current head of the MA in Social Design program at Design Academy Eindhoven. Until very recently, she was the director of research at New Institute in Rotterdam. Her work touches on many sociopolitical and environmental dimensions of design and cultural production, as well as the emergence of new paradigms for institutions. She has been a curator at the Shanghai Art Biennial, curator of the Dutch Pavilion at the Venice Architecture Biennale in 2018, and chief curator of the 2016 Oslo Architecture Triennale. Together with Marina, we unpack what designing the social might mean, and we explore the outer reaches of architectural research, both in the political and ecological realms. Marina is, in her own words, an institutional animal, but one who is well aware of the potentials and pitfalls of inhabiting institutions, as we talk about support, control, the notion of risk, and perhaps most importantly, the tension between bureaucracy and empathy. As always, you'll find an extensive list of references that we cover in the episode notes, so make sure to check them out for further links. For the more visually oriented listeners, we are sharing images of works that are mentioned in Instagram. You can check us out at ahali.podcast. So, with that introduction, I welcome Marina Otero-Verzier. But I think we also need to acknowledge the state of the world. So maybe before I kind of barge into questions, let's first acknowledge the current condition. We went through the pandemic and then now we are all being affected, some of us much more obviously around the world, by a war uh, that's taking place. And I'm wondering where do we find you, Marina, as a place and also maybe as a state of mind? I'm currently in Rotterdam. But yeah, I think for the last weeks, my mind has been very much uh, in Ukraine. I think as many of you, I've been, uh, well, many friends, my students are from uh, Ukraine or places around. I've been working in Kiev for a year and a half in a project in a site that was bombarded also last week. So, well, it has been intense, but in any case, I'm in a privileged position, obviously, here from my calm house in a neighborhood in the center of Rotterdam. But yeah, my mind has been very much there. And we are all very worried, concerned, thinking very much about the people of Ukraine. I think it's a common sentiment and also sometimes, at least on my behalf, a little bit frustrating to also not know what to do and how to act. It feels very limiting in a sense. I'm sorry to hear that also you were that close to Kiev. I hope it resolves some sense. Going back to, let's say, your body of work in research and all the kind of 
areas that are obviously quite relevant, but also quite wide ranging, like bringing in technology, ecology and automated landscapes, malware, virus as design, planetary exhaustion, interspecies and cohabitation. Like being so wide ranging and so prolific, I was curious, like, how do you decide what's interesting? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I guess it's a combination of certain intuition. And also, I will say that one topic leads to the other. They seem very, in a way, different, but they are very much interconnected. Many times there is curiosity as well, like things that I don't understand and but yet I find them that are relevant are things that we should be aware of that we should learn from in order to understand the current contemporary condition and others are in a way a form of uh, a stubbornness so like <laughs> in relation to architectural practice I tend to be interested in topics that I think are related to architecture but nevertheless are not necessarily uh, present in the architectural canon as has been for a long time so it also depends on the on the framework when I was working at Head New Institute obviously I have to take into consideration that I was working for a national institution funded by the state and had different missions. So, you know, that's those intuitions, curiosities have to be mediated by what I think is of interest for, you know, the population of the Netherlands, the professionals, etc. When I am more free because I am operating as, you know, only represented myself, then I can, I can be a bit more, you know, speculative yeah. in the way in which I approach topics. Yeah, I think we will get back to the how we inhabit institutions question and that relationship with power and source of support and things like that. But before we venture into that, I mean, my observation from your work, especially with regards to research, and it's, it felt to me it's almost like the kind of constitutive outside of architecture and design practice. In a sense, that's very definitive of the way things are heading, but they are somehow, as you mentioned, totally outside the discourse. But I also noticed that you, at certain points, ventured into core questions and underlying issues of especially architecture and design, such as, as you mentioned, the canon, the question of the canon, but also the question of the grid. I heard you speak about the Cartesian grid as a kind of state of mind and, in a way, underlying principle that needs to be challenged. In a sense, these are all kind of reflective practices. From this reflective uh, mode, you now ventured into heading a department of social design, which is basically, in a way, of course, has very critical donations, but basically geared towards practitioners kind of honing their skills, honing their confidence and becoming social designers. So were there a kind of shift in your approach uh, or the way you position yourself with regards to becoming the head of social design in an MA program? Yeah, yeah, indeed. I think there is a shift in the emphasis. I always define myself as an architect. So even though that I have not been design architecture so often as I was before, but I practiced architecture when I was living in Spain for a while, my practice has been more connected to research, curatorial work, editorial work. But nevertheless, I always understand that that practice is primarily defined as that of an architect that then operates in different mediums. So I use the same logic when I think about social design. 
And precisely because it makes me so uncomfortable, the title social design, <laughs> I was trying to change it many times. Like it should be intersectional design, should be a social design, should be something completely different. And at the end, I decided to leave it as it was, because obviously the program had a longer history than before I, I joined. I decided to leave it like that. To, to coexist with this discomfort and made me like sharper in the way this positioned me and the people in the team and the students. And that means that we are always questioning what social design is or might be, but we are what we somehow consider we do is to use that as space to think about other ways of organizing society. And the people who join as students, they are not only designers or people with a background in design, but there are people coming from, you know, they are performers or theater makers or cooks, political scientists, etc. So we think that that obviously there is a practical or a notion of applied practice, but that applied practice could be developed in so many ways. It could be by cooking with certain ingredients or proposing a new idea of how cooking reorganizes society, or it could think about engagement with certain groups through participatory practices, but also proposing new scenarios, more speculative ideas about where the world is heading, etc. So in that sense, I encourage always forms of intervention, whether they are more material or they are more theoretical. I believe in both spaces are operative. I think social design is, even though it's kind of been existing for a while, it's also a relatively a pretty new title and in a way trying to tackle that in, let's say, having a kind of small battle with that from within the department. <laughs> Sounds good. I mean, I, I relate to that because I was for seven, eight years, I was a head of a industrial product design department and the curriculum that we developed was furthest it can be from <laughs> what the name suggests, but still we also kept it there to remind ourselves of the battleground to kind of propose some mode of transformation. No, that I think that for me, that's very, it's very useful in the sense that if that's why I keep on using the term or the name architect or as, as to describe my work, or that's why I keep social design because they create certain frictions and they make things more complicated. They are perhaps, you know, they is occupying certain terms, occupying certain names and, and dealing with the frictions they create in relation to how you understand them or how they could be understood. And to me, that's, that's something that I like. And uh, I end up, maybe I'm, I like travel because I always send them places or, yeah, well, we can go back to the institutions that are not fully resolved. And uh, I think many, many important practices, projects could come out of those spaces. I think because they, they create certain relevance to the work you do. You have to position yourself continuously. You are not comfortable within them. So that means that you have to recalibrate, reorient, and always, you know, self-reflect on the work you do. Yeah. And that discomfort, in a way, I find it's important to do a practice that is embedded and situated. Mm -hmm. So if we were to kind of open it up or try to open it up a bit more, because when we say architecture, there is a kind of 
image more or less in everybody's mind. I mean, we do challenge that image as well, but still. In social design, maybe I'm asking on behalf of the audience, maybe a clear image doesn't show up. I mean, you mentioned how kind of social dimension is organized and how to give form to relationships within and without institutions and other things come to my mind. But how would you define or how would you exemplify in a way the practice of social design? I think we try to have a practice and that is attuned to social and ecological contemporary issues. And there are obviously the students at the end, they also have their own you know, approach. They come with their different um, interests and we try to enhance and support them in finding out uh, how these interests could become a social design practice. But to give you something more concrete, we work a lot with materials and in particular biomaterials. So we try to investigate you know, what is the difference between matter and materials? Materials generally be more associated with commodities. How to operate with matter and living matter? So there's a lot of exploration in relation to, you know, alternative, alternative matter, alternative ways of thinking through design and matter. So yeah, there are a lot of mushrooms <laughs> projects about <laughs> like mycelium, mushrooms, algae, microbes, bacteria, you name it. We always have students uh, asking me to try like uh, kombucha that they did with their own pee and like you name it, like it's quite exciting. <laughs> um, at the same time, we try to also understand the relation interrelation that are between our bodies and the body of the planet. So thinking through ecology, through the question of bodies. So many times we also explore, for instance, questions of exhaustion, burnout, depression, but they we situate them at the level of the individual, but also at the level of the collective. So how these maladies of our time are also, you know, multiscalar and collective, not individual struggles. So these are like some of the questions that we, we deal with, but then, you know, you see the projects, the graduation projects of the students, and they range from from, you know, all type of interest. There is one student now who is working in repair and maintenance, another working in dust, another working in setting an ecological autonomous space in one land in the Netherlands. Another is working in trying to locate projectiles that didn't explode during the Second World, but they sometimes identified in the German cities and they provoke big you know, mobilizations and evacuations of inhabitants and etc. So there's like, uh, well, another uh, is working with people with dementia. So they are very different uh, in the yeah. media they use and how they engage with certain communities. Sometimes it's in a very direct form. Sometimes the communities are not human and sometimes I think more, much more abstract, but then nevertheless have a clear impact in certain cities, communities. Also, I noticed that you took charge of the department right in the middle of the pandemic, which was an another kind of layer in all the dimensions that you are mentioning, like our relationship to the planet, our social existence, our kind of the acceleration and burnout and many other things that we kind of experienced throughout these past couple of years, how was it to kind of start in a pandemic? Yeah, it was not the best timing for me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was beautiful in certain ways because it, you know, encouraged us to rethink what the space of education, the space of the class could be. Also be very clear about 
forms of exploitation and self-exploitation that are connected to, you know, professional or post-professional education. And, you know, it, it allowed us to think differently about many things. For instance, yeah, empathy. I mean, we take it for granted many times, but it has been fundamental for the years of the pandemic. Or in many ways, yeah, what I say is always when I we start the masters at the beginning of the course, I always tell everyone who joins that I'm not going to celebrate, you know, students who don't sleep because they have to finish the, the projects or that they are self-exploiting themselves because later they are better self-exploited by design firms or companies or corporations. And I don't expect that from anyone, including myself. So it also challenges ideas of quality that I think is something that we have also been rethinking a lot in general in the world. Like how do we assess practices? How do we assess design? What is the conditions under which we, we say something has certain qualities? And obviously there are aesthetic, aesthetic qualities, but are also the ones that are more important, that is that they serve to a better world that is not extractive or exploitative. So I think in that sense, we have to navigate that space. Uh, we have to navigate of the space that people are, you know, everyone is tired. Everyone has certain, you know, drama around and uh, we cannot just ignore that. So more and more students are open about their mental health mm -hmm. and their struggles. And precisely because we are in a social design master's, those things are also topics of conversation and topics that the students share with each other because sometimes they work within those conditions. So I think there are less taboos about those issues. I think that's to be celebrated. So we're more open about our own fragility, our vulnerability, and also students are much more critical. I think there's one of the most generations that I've seen that consistently voice their concern and they are very, very direct about things that they don't consider adequate attitudes, forms of grading or forms of, yeah. So I think there is a lot of negotiation and the pandemic has incentivated and, you know, exacerbated about uh, a little bit those conditions. So it hasn't been easy to be in a way in a position of director or in a position of administration within an institution and having to navigate on the one hand institutional politics and bureaucracies and on the other forms of empathy and understanding uh, that you need also in those times to establish with, with everyone around you. But that tension is difficult to, to navigate, but at the same time, it's, it's important. No, that was really nice. Something you said I really relate to. I mean, this fetishization of, let's say, self-harm almost, which is, I think, our generation of having studied architecture or design is like, I've been subjected to it. And I've also personally seen it in many colleagues. And I've always also reacted to that and tried to at least convince the students that they don't need to have sleepless nights to have a kind of interesting project <laughs> or a recognition of some sort. But yeah, thanks for elaborating on that as well. And I think another thing that came to my mind when you were talking is that this question of, I mean, in our very first episode, Stephen Wright was talking about the kind of paradigms of 20th century art and how they are shifting in a way, shifting from specificity, which was this in search of like, let's say specific objects, autonomy of some sort or site specificity even to a sense of compatibility in artistic practices. And parallel to that, 
in a way distancing oneself from the performance and performativity and thinking about competence. So thinking about not the performance, the action of, let's say, for the sake of doing it, but how you can utilize or how you can work with that competence that you have developed in different settings. And I think those two notions like compatibility and competence seem to me, and I also asked this to Stephen during our conversation, is like directly tapping into what social design as an idea offers. So I just wanted to add that. And now that you mentioned uh, inhabiting power structures and the kind of institutional context, the responsibility, both as a curator, you mentioned to public, but as also a kind of, let's say, educator, kind of responding to both, let's say, institutional agendas, structures and systems, and at the same time, those who inhabit, those who make use, and those who occupy those spaces, which is in this case participants to the course. So I'm going to link this to something that you asked in a text before and return the question to you. Like, why then do you continue to believe in institutions? (laughs) Why after seeing the forms of control? Why knowing that institutional bureaucracies and efficiency dogmas prevent the uncompromising interpersonal attention and affection that care relies on? So why do you continue to work in institutions? Yeah, well, maybe one response has to do with what we said before, that because I'm deeply institutionalized. I mean, I've been, (laughs) I studied architecture since from 1999 until like, well, very recently, because then was architecture, education, then master's, then PhD. So I'm an institutionalized body. Now, I know how to recognize these violences, and I try not to inflict them in other people, but I'm very much part of the system. And so I can I can recognize the pitfalls and but also the default lines. In a way, I can, probably within the institution, tell my students, don't do what I did, because it's true what you were saying. I've been educated like that. When I started architecture, remember one teacher saying, well, look around because your friends will be these ones. If you have a, a partner, will be someone around here because you won't have time for anyone else. You will be having a miserable life. No? And uh, but still, you have to be proud to be here and become an architect. I found it... <laughs> Terrible. But in a way, yeah, we were educated in a way that new generations are not about this idea of self-sacrifice, working hard towards something that comes later. And it's not that, you know, having long-term perspective is bad, but in a way, this idea of inflicting violence towards your own body just to, for the sake of some sort of like achievement that will come later seems stupid to me now, especially in the world that we will live in. I think we have to be much more caring and understand how you know, these practices of exploitation, of self-exploitation are part of larger ones. Like, so we are contributing to that type of ethos. But yeah, so I'm part of that. So I recognize that I'm an animal, I'm institutional animal. And then I try to, <laughs> I try to get out of it. But, but the thing <laughs> is that I'm a good institutional agent. And at the end of the day, I started to think that, well, I can navigate those spaces and utilize certain resources differently. And I know that this, and then the question is, these small interventions are opening up these fault lines and making institutions open wide and transport them? Or are they just like legitimizing them or make them feel a bit like, 
variable enough so we don't destroy them and we don't like flatten them and burn them. So probably is the second, probably it's just like I'm helping to legitimize certain actions, but I'm taking, I mean, the last years has been more and more. So that's one of the reasons why I quit uh, my job at a new institute. And I obviously thought that perhaps education will be a better space to operate. Uh, yeah, obviously the institutions of education are equally problematic. So I think I just have to come to terms with, with what I really want to do. And as I said, I mean, it's difficult for me because it's like stopping being in a way that I've been already and it's embodied in me. And I'm just trying to do the best out of I can out of that, that space. But I know that is there are other options. It's just like I'm trying to untrain myself. So every time that I'm telling the students not to do something, I'm selling it, saying it loud. So I'm saying it to me as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's a form of therapy. And when I write this text, in a way, I also like trying to, but the, the changes are slow. I'm taking those changes. No, I'm, I'm more now I'm a freelancer. I'm not permanently employed by any institution, not even the Design Academy. So in a way, I have a different relation with institutions right now. And it's something that I want to continue exploring. That's really interesting. And thanks for being candid. I find it interesting that throughout several episodes, we've kind of come across institutional actors or agents that have more and more been thinking about pedagogy and the pedagogical context as a space of, let's say, possibility. But of course, one should tread carefully about the, in a way, history and legacy of the educational structure as well, which is like highly hierarchical, highly kind of formative and oftentimes illusionary, maybe even a kind of, if we look critically, maybe even a worse apparatus than the museum or museological context. So, but it's, I, I really appreciate, I mean, I'm also always kind of going back and forth between education and practice. But I think there is something also emerging from within the educational platform and also what the educational practice offers in a way. I mean, we've hosted Anna Devich, who's running Vehave Academia. We've hosted Nato Thompson, who is running this alternative arts school. So there are also experiments outside of the formal academia as well. And we have also hosted Yarzi Seymour, who's running the Dirty Art Department at Sandberg Institute. So it's, I think, creating a hopefully a conversation between the guests as well. And I'm curious about one more thing, like, because you kind of hinted on it. Do you ever exercise a kind of anticipatory or let's say projectionist manner in like how cultural institutions can operate in the future or a possible or multiple possible futures for cultural institutions to exist in let's say mode of operation, but also architecturally. And perhaps you can link this to your PhD research work as well. So yeah, that's, I think the PhD was like a great paradox because I was doing research on alternative institutions, alternative formations, especially through the lens of architecture, like what are spatial conditions for institutions. And I've been always very intrigued by temporary traveling formation, but it was quite critical as well. In many cases, there were beautiful examples from the pre-war and also in the 60s and 70s, but recently those models were largely appropriated by corporations, the mobility or temporality of institutions was even more linked to almost a neoliberal, you know, 
ideology than forms of resistance. But funny enough, after doing the research on these temporary institutions, I end up working, uh, well, curating several of them, like Oslo Architecture Triennial, Manifesta, Shanghai, so like kind of, <laughs> and even like uh, Studio X network idea of a university for Columbia University. So in a way, it was all the postulates, critical postulates that I had as a theorist, or as a historian in doing my PhD, it became more complicated to be applied when I was part of those initiatives. And I tried, nevertheless, to bring those critical thinking into them, but I always find a lot of gray zones. And I, I'm okay with that. You know, I'm not a person that... I think I'm quite clear about my politics and where I stand. But at the same time, I, I navigate quite difficult domains sometimes. It, in occasions, I uh, stay with the travel. Sometimes I'm very quick in also taking the decisions more radical. Uh, well thought, but also I don't doubt to take them. For instance, I also quit uh, the team of uh, curatorial team of Manifesta in Marseille, uh, or, or I recently quit a uh, new institute uh, job. So there are moments in which I believe that my job is not there. But still, yeah, I, 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 as I said, I, I do very provocative and sometimes, you know, could be problematic projects. For the future of institutions, I, I, I always remember a conversation with a friend of mine, Amal Allah, and she said, well, it could be very, in a way, not very humble to say that we can just reinvent completely institutions. And she's a very critical mind. And I was surprised she said that because I always thought that she wanted to burn down all the institutions and, you know, create new structures. But at the same time, she acknowledged that so many people has participated in creating those spaces or those practices. So there's some, some respect has to be done mm -hmm. or has to be put on, on those spaces or at least like understand what made them stand for such a long time. When I talk about institutions, I not only talk about museums, or, well, especially thinking of social design, we can think about the family, we can think about many organizations of society. Sure. But we have seen also how these have transformed dramatically in the last decades, like the conditions that we, under which we imagine what a family was, have completely transformed. So I, I think similarly, we can think about many institutions transforming while keeping their names or, or not. I believe that certain forms of bureaucracy are needed, but in general are very violent. So I think that in the moment that institutions operate primarily through bureaucracy and less through forms of empathy, that's completely a failure. And we hide behind bureaucracy to take decisions that affect the many. Sometimes I think it's very, very problematic. I also consider that there are certain forms of vulnerability that has to be part of an institutional environment. And many times institutions protect themselves too well against risks, or I, I mean, I've been too often in conversations in institutions about risk management or risk assessment. And I can't, I tell you, I hate those conversations so profoundly because everything <laughs> and everyone becomes a risk. Like suddenly inviting someone from uh, Cuba becomes a risk. And look, you know, and then to me, that's extremely problematic. So I think the notion of risk taking in institutions have to also change, you know. It's, it's yeah. not 
And, and then obviously there is a tension between giving stability, the, recognizing the work of everyone involved in creating that space, and at the same time creating a, you know, a structure that doesn't allow for self-reflection and it relies too often in well-known practices that don't, don't have a space for, for change. Uh, and I'm referring to people who works in institutions for too long. I mean, yeah. I think that has to be, it's not that again, I want to instaurate a neoliberal turn in which, you know, everything is precarious, but at the same time, there are forms of power that are very ingrained. And then this kind of relation between the inside and the outside, I think right now, many times is very drastic and very clear. And I think big institutions many times have to act as spaces or infrastructures for redistribution rather than for accumulation. So some of the projects that we did at the Institute were thought through that idea as the project we did with squatting communities, understanding that certain institutions receive more support. And this support is not meant to only be distributed by the this institution itself, but it's been like maybe redistributed to other mm-hmm. organizations and corporations. So these are, as you say, it's not definitely an idea of what it will be, but certain uh, ideas, certain practices that I think for me are fundamental. You mentioned like several things that are worth underlining. So if you allow me, I'm going to just rephrase or at least repeat for the sake of underlining, one is this kind of hiding behind bureaucracy for decision making or in moments of decision making, which is it's like a very critical notion. The other is also something you mentioned in when talking about the school and your relationship to the participants of the course, that there is a new kind of emergence of a voice that is more critical and that in a way, at least for the time being, sounds like knowing what it wants, that voice. It wants multiple things, but it's very kind of elaborate and deliberate in a sense in its demands. By that I mean recognition, rights, access, you know, acknowledgement and many other dimensions. And there are also like emerging kind of mini institutions or forms that are, let's say, social forms that are kind of emerging. But on face of that, there seems to be like a need for embracing the limitations on behalf of the large institutions. And it's it has a give and take, I guess, because give in the sense of, let's say, share their resources, share their kind of funds, let's say what you mentioned as accumulation versus redistribution. So give access and share resources. And also maybe take in terms of like listening uh, to these new formations and in a way abandoning the institutional arrogance, so to say, like we know how to do this uh, manner of positioning oneself. And there is so much to learn from all these voices and all these practices that are emerging at the moment. And so maybe with that, it could be a nice moment to open up the questions and voices from our small group of participants. Highly conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions. If you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings, visit ahali.space and send us a line via email. So I'll, uh, I'll take a chance then to ask a question to, to Marina. Um, so I was wondering, um, as a teacher and educator who works with students about art, as, about using art as a tool for to foster social change, 
I sometimes struggle a lot to support my students when they feel overwhelmed or when they lose motivation, for example, for what has been happening around, for example, war or climate emergency and, uh, you know, like many other things happening around. So I was wondering if it happens to you too, since you started your being the director of the social design department in the middle of the pandemic, and how do you respond and deal with it? Thanks. Yeah, that's a... Fantastic question. I think we are all a bit overwhelmed, I would say. So that's shared. And obviously for students to suddenly feel responsible of all the world, have the world on their shoulders, sometimes is too much. And I've seen students really suffering when, you know, they, they do their best to engage with the most dramatic and difficult problems. <laughs> sometimes I just have to tell them, you cannot do this if you don't take care of yourself. I mean, it's a form of care that you can only also share with others as you also practice with you, especially when you work with certain communities who need your support. So, yeah, many, many of us have been completely overwhelmed by the situation and the responsibilities ahead. We try to keep it light in many occasions as well. So there's a lot of moments of humor. And then there is also this understanding that For me, like we shifted perhaps the emphasis on projects to practice. And uh, we say, well, my practice is concerned with this and this and that, these aims, these tools, these uh, understandings, these possibilities. But my project tackles this practice or relates to this practice in this particular way. And sometimes, you know, a very small intervention or a small idea has bigger consequences. And that's how we, we navigate the space, knowing that not all the projects have to solve all the problems. <laughs> and actually, we generally don't even talk about problems and solving problems. We talk about higher resolutions, how, you know, I learn to see the world differently and through different resolutions and, you know, understand how it could be reorganized or how certain things could be seen or read or understood or practiced differently. So that's how we try to, to navigate that discomfort and a sense of uh, overwhelming responsibility by thinking, yeah, this is a longer run. This is my practice. Today I'm doing this and I'm going to put all my love on this. And you, you see, let's see where this takes me and it will be wrong because any single act is done with a lot of, you know, interest and care is meaningful. Thank you. And thank you, Alessandra, for the question. My question stemmed from architecture of appropriation, but I'm curious about your thoughts uh, on archives in general as well. Architecture of appropriation acknowledges the squatting as a spatial practice and utilizes archival practices to open a discussion about reinventing the urban interiors. While you are designing narratives and inviting others to join you, uh, how do you approach to archival materials and make them about collectively produced and shared time rather than a collection of finite objects? Yeah, that's one of the projects that I see I'm proud of and has been an ongoing project since 2015. Even now that I'm not longer affiliated with the institution, continues more so on a personal basis. But it's also complicated because it means that we included squats Uh, or the squatting practices, spatial practices of squatting into the National Archive of Architecture and Urbanism of the Netherlands. One could claim why you are institutionalizing these 
practices that are actually criminalized by the state, the same state that is paying for this uh, archive to exist. So there's a contradiction in there. We are in claiming to include certain voices that are not represented in a, a state archive from a state that actually criminalizes and persecutes those same uh, bodies. At the same time, we thought that uh, we, something we discussed with the communities very much, how to do it, what is the purpose of doing it, what type of other practices could be unleashed. And I have to say it was a sort of fault line. It was something that introduced a crack. It wasn't easy to get, but it introduced a crack in the archive that I think is, I think, wider. And it was a pilot project, always labeled as something speculative. Pilots, they didn't want to fully recognize that we were using public funding to actually, you know, include criminalized practices in the in the archive. But we did, and it is there. And it opened up other projects that are now have full funding and I recognize and are bringing other, you know, voices who were not present in the archive. Now, I always say, if I think about the amount of documents of that archive and the small percentage of the new, you know, acquisitions that are made, inevitably you always think about what, you know, how I overcome that unbalance. And that's what I come back to the idea is like, I'm just legitimizing this archive by introducing just a small, you know, critical voices within a larger body. At the same time, it's what we can do at this moment, because the archive has been, is the result of many decades of decision-making processes and forms of value creation that we might not agree with now, but was the canon on that time. So now we are in this time I see my responsibility as bringing into that structure those agents, those conversations that are relevant for today's society and that hopefully, you know, will be recognized also in the future. And hopefully this will not be just instance, but will be like a turning point in how this practice of archiving transforms. But we don't know if it's going to be just a footnote in history in the archive or something more relevant. What I know is that the, the type of relations that we establish uh, between the people working in the project and the squatting communities have been profound and continue. And uh, just in December, we were all meeting to discuss the housing crisis in the Netherlands and how to organize. And we are organizing an event in a few uh, weeks. So there is an ongoing there's an ongoing conversation. And unfortunately, many of these spaces that we, we know that are included in the ARC and we work with were actual, were not historical spaces, were actual squads. Most of them have disappeared. So suddenly the, the project has become a historical project when it was very contemporary, about like contemporary uh, practices. Do you mean they were closed down in through the process of making, while you were kind of collectively building this, I mean, adding them into the archive, they were uh, like actively being closed down by the government. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Um, so one of the aims of the project was to, on the one hand, trying to put pressure on the fact that squatting had been legal in the Netherlands, so at least tolerated in the Netherlands forever. But in 2010, there was a new ban on squatting. But still, they have certain loopholes and spaces. But in the last year, has been much more intense and applied brutally. So many of the places and communities that we were working with have been evicted. Most of the that stay are just because they were legalized. And 
I think that's my failure, also our failure in the project, because the project was not only about collecting those, you know, this spatial practice of squatting, but raising, you know, the question about criminalization of squatting, especially in a moment where having um, housing, how access to housing is so difficult in the Netherlands and elsewhere. And we not only didn't <laughs> succeed, but actually the law has been stricter. I, I mean, I don't think it's because necessarily about our project, but we did try to use the project as, a, you know, in support of certain communities who had court cases, who were in legal processes. And in some of them, they succeeded. So some of the squads uh, were allowed to continue after having like a legal process because the judge decided that the right to housing was more important in those cases than the ownership of, of the space. But in, a, in any case, yeah, has been a crackdown on squatting in the Netherlands and there are very little spaces that still operate as a squat, which is um, very sad. Well, I agree. But to be honest, it's also maybe not fair on yourself to expect like immediate results from archival work. But I think this like there is something that's very important and has a lot of potency, has a lot of potential in a sense, is to contaminate this archive in a positive sense, contaminate this archive, with, which is focusing on built environment and architecture and bringing in almost, I'm gonna kind of link that, maybe your interest in malware and virus as design to bring in this new kind of knowledge, even if it's relatively tiny, to be introduced into this archive is quite a strong position in my opinion. And I think what remains perhaps is that how that archive is to be used, how that archive is to be uh, made accessible and how further knowledge production in the long run will be taking place, incorporating that archival material that you have generated. So I think it's a much more longer durational endeavor when it comes to archives. And something that kind of reminded me in Daria's question is that this, I mean, we have discussed this with Vasif Kortun in one of the episodes that he was mentioning that uh, history is not finite at all. And there can be millions of entry points to historical realities and how we narrate them, how we read them uh, and how we rebuild our knowledge and how we unlearn certain things as well as learned new things. But we also need to be always aware that archives are kind of always mediated and even from like things like metadata, how certain things are categorized to, of course, first and foremost, what is being included in an archive. So in that sense, I think the this project of, let's say, contaminating the archive is like really valuable. Yeah, I like that idea of the virus. Yeah, that's what I tell you, that sometimes things don't seem un uh, uh, not related, uh, unrelated, but then in my mind they are like, in fact, there was um, a serious, an untold serious uh, that was the ghosts, well, it was called spirits. And it was about the squatting, the archive, malware, and another project that we have with Heman Chong on spirits and real estate. So yeah, these agents of forms of infiltrating certain, certain spaces, I'm interested in that. I think that's in a way very naively is what I, going back to your question about why I work in institutions. I want to see myself as as that, no? As a kind of a small virus that can contaminate. But yeah, <laughs> as I say. That's still a kind of big responsibility. <laughs> and then I, I, I guess after this, I won't be hired in any institution anymore. <laughs> we can always edit out some parts if you... <laughs> 
if you are regretting. But yeah, do we have any other questions or comments? I have a little question. I was just uh, checking the master program and well, I noticed that the courses are, all the titles are Biolab, Planetary Bodies. And I didn't understand the relationship between the social design that you were explaining and the practice part. Why this obsession with the bio? I'm just guessing maybe to create some kind of sympathy for ecological problems. I totally understand your question and I think you are right. I think there is an emphasis on uh, biodesign, on ecological trends, because for us that's the given, is the basis from which then to operate. So in a way, like then students take those learnings and they apply in any other context, where this doesn't have to be necessarily that they design new materials. So they think also in projects that have the focus on ecology. But in a way, we think that today there is something inevitable about thinking through ecology. So for us, that's the basis. And what we do the first year is to offer different understandings of how could social design be practiced or through this, which lens. So there are questions about, indeed, ecology, technology, uh, social practice, etc. And then everyone feels uncomfortable the first year. You can ask the students because everyone comes with an idea of what social design is. And then suddenly they have to work with mushrooms and many people get very frustrated. And the other one, when we have, you know, hackathon, it's like, I, I'm not interested in technology. You know, I just want to work with people and so on and so forth. So basically the first year is making everyone feel quite uncomfortable but at the same time it's helping everyone to take certain positions and to say okay I'm definitely not interested in that because my practice concerning social design goes in this direction so it's we try to care <laughs> for everyone involved because we know that is not an easy process it's a bit confrontational and we try to give a lot of you know, support in doing that process. So yes, the same reaction you have, many students have. <laughs> and then some of them continue working in questions connected to ecology and some others don't. But if they don't, at least they are aware. And at the end, they are, you know, they include those, you know, concerns somehow in the project. So they are not oblivious about uh, these issues. They just decide not to put the emphasis of their practice or the projects on that. And I still considering these questions. And to me, that's important. You also already kind of nodded to Donna Haraway and what the book Staying with the Trouble, in my opinion, kind of boils down to is that there is actually any discussion or any kind of confrontation or inhabitation related to social life is always already embedded to technologies and the ecological question. I remember Lucia Pietruisti, she mentioned that the biggest mistake of the environmental resistance movement was to detach themselves from questions of social justice. So in a sense, looking only at the environment or looking only at ecology is also a kind of, let's say, fallacy because it misses out on these questions' actual effect on social justice as well. Yeah, I think that's totally right. It's an interconnected nature. And it's something that we always discuss. No? Many times the communities that are affected also by, you know, pollution, they are also the communities that are socially excluded. And we see that, for instance, in Rotterdam, the areas with lower income are the areas next to the harbor where the wind blows in a particular direction, bringing all the pollutants from the industries and are actually the um, communities with a larger um, 
population of migrant background coming from the former Dutch colony. So in a way, these questions are completely interconnected and are embodied. So that's why we there is a, a particular element connected to ecology, but always thinking through bodies, through scales, and seeing how you know questions of social justice are also affecting at different scales in, in, in the world and to different bodies, where it individual or planetary. So I totally agree with that. Thank you, Gemini, for the question. Do we have more coming? I saw Ezgi opening a camera and Sarp. I have a question. It's more about the economic aspect of institutions. I also kept referring to older episodes of Ali as well, because like this paradigms of institution reflects a lot the current economic model. And somehow there are many existing alternative economic models as well, as Catherine Baum, for example, referred with uh, economic practice as artistic practice and referring to the diverse economies and the visible and in- invisible ones. And somehow I was thinking maybe it's not the institution itself, but the model, the mainstream model that it relies itself. And there was this book that I recently read called Donut Economics. And the author was referring, for example, how the wealth is calculated by excluding all the external damages, the environment as externalities. And in the meantime, It includes the expenses that are made to cover those harms. So it's in a way, this main economic model is in the background, uh, while also it puts the nature as a background as well. But it's actually the system, like the dynamic system we are living in, is just referred to as externalities. Also, because I studied economics before switching to curatorial studies. And it took me years to turn back to the area of economy because it is somehow like a more isolated field in the social sciences, but it's actually a social system itself as well. So I was wondering, do you think if there is a way to include these artistic practices that take economy as its uh, subject and develop new tools to implement them into organizational models? Yeah, I think this is really, really relevant because what it strikes me is that, for instance, even in institutions that are fully funded and have a study funding that is guaranteed, not depending on fundraising or whatsoever, they still implement a very capitalist-oriented model in how resources are managed, distributed, how the organization is structured, you know, forms of hierarchy, power and accountability. And then you could say, well, why don't, you know, as a cultural space, receive the money and organize these practices differently? But obviously, there are more and more all the institutions where they are museums or universities or you name it, there are but subjected to bureaucracy, some forms of accountability, especially in culture, because culture for many people is not the most urgent thing to do with public money. So then you have to all the time justify <laughs> what you do in a very particular way. And yeah, you can you can go around those things, but in these systems of accountability and, and measuring impact of the institutions make that the logic, the internal logics of the institutions are also permeated by, you know, the systems that we try to oppose. And that's very tragic. I've seen certain attempts, for instance, Recently at the new institute, there were like the some of the artists who won the call for fellows 
melt. They propose to redistribute the fellowship uh, stipend with people differently able who will approach the institution and wouldn't find necessarily the support they need. And they will be paid by the institution for any single question email that will be addressed to them because the institution hasn't clearly directed them or like made them life easy to navigate within the institution. So actually, I, th- I thought it was interesting foremost also, you know, not negating, you know, the money aspect, but actually redistributing it to those who generally are not represented and they are not taken into account in those spreadsheets and that you were naming. In the social design department, there are many students who try to come up with alternative economies under which social relations and institutions can be organized, whether they are based on currencies, different deal that, you know, the ones we use like Euro uh, or dollar or uh, lira. But at the same time, some of them utilize them partially. So that's why when I was talking previously about a project of one of the students about repair and maintenance, it was also, first of all, acknowledging different economies in relation to consumerism, but also how these are implemented through a more peer-to-peer forms of engagement that in which the value is differently uh, assessed and not necessarily monetary terms. But at the end, there is a form of value creation and there is a form of exchange that in a way is somehow inevitable in all social relations. The question is, what do you value? If it's not euros, it's time, it's care, it's love, it's just, uh, you know, trust. Is There is always uh, something in the equation. And, you know, but I, I see many people that actually live by, by those by those terms and they don't engage necessarily or only partially they engage with, you know, the, the current system and they have parallel ones. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I'm a very like <laughs> normative person in that sense, but I try to, you know, at least redistribute in different ways. But I would like to see what you say. And now, unfortunately, maybe that's why we need more creative economists <laughs> working together with cultural practitioners in order to envision um, different forms of organization. And also, if I may, I just want to add two things as well to your response and Ezgi's question. One is, I think economy as a discipline, and now I'm totally uh, talking outside of my <laughs> comfort zone, but yeah, I may be totally wrong, but it feels to me that it's always trying to map out an overarching theory of how, let's say, values are negotiated and that the treating the ecological cost as externality is immediately embedded to the extractive notion, you know, the, let's say, capitalist industrials, what have you, like treating the earth, treating this planet as a resource that you don't have to pay for, so to say, the extractive mindset. So in that sense, to move beyond that, perhaps we also need to not necessarily look for another kind of meta uh, agenda, but like the example of malware or like the approach of Katrin Böhm to treat economy itself as a cultural realm as well and a kind of public space where values are being negotiated. And through our modes of practice, perhaps there will be a demand to challenge the current statu quo of how economics are established and systematized. Yeah, I totally agree. And I was thinking before we were talking about this notion of risk that 
drives me crazy, like in institutional language. And yeah, I have never seen that in any, you know, list of possible risks that an institution might face and they have to account for to prepare for, you know, any any situation. None of them includes like the environmental cost of, for instance, climate condition in the archive or the environmental cost of people traveling around and flying around of their staff or any, (laughs) or like the risk of where the funding comes from, or, you know, like, even if it's from the States, like who is profiting from that, etc. I think uh, they are not uh, part of the conversation. They are totally externalities and things that are not even considered. Um, but I don't think that will be the situation in the next years. I think more and more these questions are at the core. And, and again, should be the basis from which to operate. And at least that's what I hope, that it was not possible a cultural practice that claims itself to be critical if those questions are still being externalities. Thanks so much, Ezgi. And we need you to keep thinking about economics as well as curatorial practice. <laughs> Can I jump in? Sure. Well, before I forget, let's give a shout out to Chus Martinez, another highly guest that's engaged with pedagogical practices, especially after Gemini's remark, because the faculty that she's heading has been renamed as Art, Gender and Nature. I think that's a meaningful step uh, towards putting ecology in the main agenda. I have a totally different question to you, Marina, about evanescent institutions. So like while reading that, I came across the Misiones Pedagogicas, uh, which I think none of us, apart from John, is very well familiar with. So uh, Esgi also touched on the fact that mainstream institutional models like derive from some marketing ideas, such as museums without walls, and whatnot to expand beyond their provincial borders, so to say. Like there are some abominations that you refer. So like you refer to the Misiones Pedagogicas and there is a a particular emphasis to its architecture and its uh, aesthetic function. Would you like to maybe introduce us like how you see this mission also as a form of distributing resources. This initiative was undertaken between 30s and like more than 5,000 libraries were distributed, which together had more than uh, 600,000 books. So I think that's more or less employing the function of internet in a period that it did not exist. So maybe could you delve into that? Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And yeah, good to name Choose. I really love Choose. I'm a total fan of her work. Misiones Pedagogicas is a project that keeps on inspiring me and, and bring a lot of emotion because obviously was developed by the Spanish Republic before the Civil War. And it tried to uh, connect uh, the communities that were living in the countryside with you know, forms of knowledge that were also produced in the capitals without being arrogant about the difference between these two knowledges, but acknowledging that there were different forms of learning and different ideas, but then trying to make an exchange and connection. So there were like many, many young artists who participated in that, that initiative. And basically it was a traveling school different ones, going from village to village, sometimes by cars, sometimes by donkeys, sometimes by 
walk, bring in books, bring in uh, moving image. Many people experience cinema for the first time in, in their lives through the Misiones Pedagogicas. Theater, painting, they were trying to bring in reproductions of famous Spanish paintings done by also young artists, super beautiful. They were listening to music. Everyone was staying in the houses of the people in the villages and spending various weeks, sometimes longer. And after they were leaving, they were leaving behind also materials, as you said, books, gramophone and different uh, materials to continue, you know, discovering these other worlds. And fortunately, Franco considered that that was a Marxist, uh, you know, practice. And many of the people involved were killed or were into exile and others joined the Franco regime. And most of the infrastructure was dismantled. Now, sometimes some remains appear hidden in, in certain buildings in a village, you know, behind a wall that, you know, we realize that there is a space behind the wall. You find the materials of the Misiones Pedagogicas. It's so, so beautiful. Unfortunately, it would have been such a transformative experience it will have lasted longer in Spain, will have really transformed the identity and the form of relation and, and culture in, in Spain. But what happened is that years after Franco and his fastest government took over, they also identified these instruments as something that could serve the purpose of their, their regime, because obviously allowed to somehow structure the territory of Spain that by that time was not, you know, we were, didn't have, obviously, uh, internet, uh, let alone certain communications like radio or, you know, roads were not accessing, were not leading to those spaces. So he appropriated the idea and launched it under a different name and indeed under a different ideology. It was called the Catedra Francisco Franco. And we're like a form of caravans and that were bringing the ideologies, fastest ideology to the towns, in this case, ideas of family, gender and politics very close to the fascist regime. And that initiative visited most of the territory of Spain and also uh, former colonial territories and lasted almost until the 70s. Some of them even after Franco passed away. And that did have a profound impact in the Spanish territory, in the architecture of the space. Because if the Misiones Pedagogicas was a very light idea of architecture that I've, I think is based on forms of social relations and ideas of managing resources in a strategic, but yet the gentle and we would say in forms of redistribution, the uh, aims behind the Franco version was very much modernization, but under like a fascist ideology of Spain. And the caravans led to forms of architecture and urbanization that very much led into what we have seen as more like neoliberal architecture that was primarily the cause of the uh, economic crisis in Spain. So forms of urbanism that that are based on private property, that are very much based on a, you know, idea of market economy and definitely not considered so much important to the social organization of society, but rather the social control. So that to me was a very, it's a, such an inspiration, but it's also <laughs> a tragedy in a way. Um, but for me, it's, a, it's one of the ways in which I make two points. One, that the same, in a way, the same project 
could lead to very, 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 or could have behind very different political ideologies and could be applied very different. So having like definition of this, you know, traveling academy that goes through the territory and connects like the same idea could actually embody very, very different political practices and ideologies. And second, the, this idea of architecture as temporary in a way, loosely structured, that is based more on social relations than on standing structures. For me, it's a very important lesson and something that I, I really find interesting and productive. At the same time, I've seen how this has been appropriated by regimes as fascist regimes, but also, as you said, by corporations. So it it allows me to think about form and function in a way that is not fixed to a particular ideology. And that sometimes, yeah, even aesthetics, forms and use are not the definite question that generates a particular form of organization. And that's that's a lesson for architects in a way. And it's not to prevent them to think politically, thinking that their way in which their projects will be occupied depends very much and if they cannot preconceive a particular political engagement, but in a way it's also to think that architecture is not a fixed structure, that it really depends also on the missions that are around there, but also the people who participate and, and many other things. And not only the structure itself is a precondition for uh, achieving a particular political aim. Or the same formal organization or the same kind of aesthetic outlook or shape of how things are organized? Differently. Which is, in a way, has a promise, the sense that we can always occupy structures of, you know, certain systems that could be reappropriated. But it's also a cautionary tale. But it's a cautionary tale. Fantastic. I mean, I would have loved to venture into this uh, topic much more, but maybe that deserves a whole other session. Thank you so much for your time and attention, first and foremost, Marina. And thanks for everyone who joined today with or without their questions, Alessandra, Daria, Gemini, Ezgi, Sarp, Metinjan. And I think this was really thought-provoking. Lots of things to kind of brew and look back into. And I personally really appreciated kind of uh, willingness on your behalf to be also uh, providing a lens into your own practice and your own life adventure, so to say, and your own positionality with regards to your practice and the institutions that you have worked with in the past. Thanks so much. Thank you for giving me that space to, to do so. And I, it was fantastic to spend time with you. And I very much appreciate all your questions that I thought were fantastic and really, really meaningful. So I'm very happy to meet you. And I hope we have the chance to meet in person and continue. And so we've come to the end of another episode. Marina Otero-Verziar's proposition on seeking higher resolutions instead of an attitude of immediate problem-solving was interesting. She showed us that while relying on specific tools, formulas or formats are not enough, those very tools and systems can also be operated towards very different means or means other than their original intentions or orientations. I think her particular mix of cautious optimism and her introspective openness allow us to reflect on how culture can be put to work, both in everyday life and in the sites of knowledge production, whether it's the museum, the school or the archive. 
Make sure to check out the show notes as there is an extensive list of links and information down there. You can also visit our website ahali.space or get some visual insights on Instagram via ahali.podcast. Ahali Conversations are produced by Asla Altay and Sarprenk Özer with Derya Yıldız as associate producer. This episode was engineered by Arda Karaburçak with music by Group Ses. This episode was also supported by a Moon and Stars project grant from the American Turkish Society. I guess it goes without saying, but we really appreciate you for supporting us by subscribing, rating, following or simply letting a friend know. This was a highly conversations with me, Can Altay, and we hope to see you next time. Thank you.